I felt like we were pretty comfortable when we headed out on the, on the 3rd of October. The, the radio call comes in that, okay, we got a mission. The mission that day was to capture two of IDEED's key lieutenants. When they took the lead and we started going north, that's when all hell broke loose. We started getting heavy, heavy fire. It was a race because you have all the Somalis, the SNA, the militia, racing to get to the helicopter, and you had us racing to get to the helicopter. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and this is a special episode. Exactly 30 years ago this week, U.S. Special Operations Forces launched a mission in Mogadishu, Somalia. The targets were senior associates of a Somali warlord, Mohamed Farah Idid. Besides the operators who would assault the target building, there were also rangers tasked with securing a perimeter and a number of U.S. helicopters flying above in support of the mission. The plan was straightforward. But when two of those helicopters, both U.S. Army Blackhawks, were hit with rocket-propelled grenades and crashed in the city, everything changed. You've possibly read the book Black Hawk Down, which tells the story of the Battle of Mogadishu that took place over two days in early October 1993, or you might have seen the subsequent movie that was based on the book. But five years ago, on the 25th anniversary of the battle, we invited three people who had taken part in it to West Point to share their stories with cadets and faculty. The conversation was moderated by our former director, Colonel Liam Collins, and for the first time, we're releasing the audio of it as an episode of the MWI podcast. Before we get to it, a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the episode. It's a pleasure to uh, introduce my panelists, and I'll take a seat after briefly introducing them. I'll keep it really short so we can just kind of get into it. Uh, first, uh, Colonel Retired Lee Van Arsdale, class of 74, uh, and in Mogadishu, he was a lieutenant colonel, and he was uh, within the headquarters. Uh, next, uh, uh, Command Sergeant Major Retired uh, Kyle Lamb, uh, he was in the ground force in, in Mogadishu. He also uh, taught me how to shoot, and as he reminded me before, I, well, he probably didn't teach me how to walk out of a, a barn door, but I learned that myself. Uh, and, still my thunder. <laughs> You can tell the rest of it later. Uh, and then uh, last but not least, uh, Colonel Retired Larry Perino, class of 1990, who's the, that would make him the Commandant's classmate. So if you want some good dirt on the Commandant, then you might want to stay down for this short question and answer later. Uh, but he was a platoon leader uh, with the Ranger Regiment uh, 20, uh, 25 years ago today. Uh, so kind of we'll start out, we'll go a little bit kind of setting up the stage for it and then get into probably what you really want to hear, but uh, to, to really understand that you know, put context on the ground operation. I think it's useful to kind of take a step back. Uh, so I guess, you know, uh, starting with uh, Lee, since you were kind of in the headquarters element, you know, when did the, when the mission came down and, when, and over there, what kind of was the, what was the mission that, uh, that, that the uh, task force was uh, assigned to do over there? It's a very simple mission, kill or capture Muhammad Farah Idid. So why do we want to do this? Somalia is in a state of civil war it's a clan-based society, and each clan has its own militia. So one of the militias massacred a group of Pakistani peacekeepers in June of 1993, and then it, it fell to the United States to do something about this. So we activated Task Force Ranger with the simple mission of kill or capture the cat in charge of this militia, who had been a general in the Somali army. 
but the Somali central government collapsed after the Soviet Union collapsed, so now they're in a state of civil war. They've killed these Pakistanis, and so task force rangers activated to go get them. It's not unusual for the elements that made up task force ranger. The, the rangers, the 1st Special Force Operational Detachment Delta, Task Force 160 at the Special Operations Aviation Regiment, they monitor activity worldwide 24-7. So when something pops up like Pakistanis getting massacred, that, that raises the attention, okay, we may have to do something here. But there are numerous things that we may have to do something here. So even though we trained and rehearsed for Mogadishu for two months prior to deploying in August of 93, there were other things going on in the world that all had our attention. So the short answer to your question is, okay, we, we got another one, let's get ready and do whatever we're told to do. And then for uh, uh, Larry and Kyle, I mean, what was a, you felt pretty good with the training going in, I mean, in, working with the, uh, you know, two different units working together. Uh, describe that a little bit. Well, I'll hit from, I'll hit from my side because uh, actually we had no idea this was at, at our level that this was even a thought. And we were actually training as part of a big joint readiness exercise in Fort Bliss, Texas. Um, and uh, I mean, it was pretty large. I think Colonel Oslin, he was, he was with 2nd Ranger Battalion at the time. He was, we were all training this big exercise uh, over multi-days. And all of a sudden, we were pulled aside, not told anything, <laughs> stood and you know, grabbed our stuff, loaded onto a C-5, flew to Fort Bragg. And then the next day, we got introduced to you know, Disneyland. And, uh, and basically got brought in and said, uh, um, uh, this is about Somalia. What? You know, I mean, we knew it was in the news and, and uh, it actually went from there. But very comfortable from, from the get-go. But uh, it was, things were moving at a lot more of a rapid pace than we were accustomed to at the time. And, and you may not be aware of it because it was before your time there, but the same Ranger Company had worked with the same squadron for the Kuwaiti Embassy rescue during okay. Desert Storm. So uh, those of us who had been there for a while had that habitual relationship. And I felt like being a unit guy, we were totally trained up, ready to go. And then once the Rangers rolled in, what we tried to do was take uh, the lieutenants, platoon sergeants, and all the cats with them under our wing and just kind of show them some other tricks to the trade. That Because this was our specialty, going in to an urban environment, you know, kicking indoors, doing what we got to do, rolling up the right bad guys shooting the other bad guys that, that need that, trying to kind of get that, that across to the Rangers. They obviously, airfield seizures, they would teach us something there, but when it comes to the mount environment, that's kind of our specialty. So it was a, it was a great working relationship. We, uh, I know with our team, I was on A team, uh, the best team I think it was in C Squadron at the time. <laughs> <clears throat> and we, uh, we worked really closely with Matt Eversman and Tom DiDomasso with their platoon and try to get them spun up to just, and we did a lot of that even when we got overseas. Once we got over to Mogadishu, we still tried to continue to do that training. We didn't just stop training because now you're in combat because you never know. So we're still doing PT, we're still doing firearms training, we're taking these guys with us, we're doing some hip pocket training, whatever, and then we were talking about this morning, E6 and E7 Delta dudes were pulling KP duty with Rangers private, so that was kind of fun. Well, if one thing's consistent over time, it's the best team in C Squadron. It's probably still not as good as the worst team in B Squadron. <laughs> so, uh, there was a B Squadron? I didn't know that. <laughs> I think the comm will back me up on this one. See you when we get back. <laughs> All right, so, uh, 
So you got over there in July of uh, 1993 and then did a couple missions before uh, August 3rd. Uh, can you describe you know, how those missions were conducted and, and went down? So we had six missions before the mission on the 3rd of October. And the, the very first mission was kind of a let's go spank something because we got mortars dropped on us pretty heavily one night. General Garrison and the, the guys in the, the jock there said, okay, we got a target, we're gonna go hit this target. And uh, that was my first, I'd been with fifth group, I'd been to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but that wasn't storm in the castle type stuff. So you couldn't have driven a stick pin up my ass with a sledgehammer on that first mission we went out to. Um, <laughs> They never heard that before, I guess. Why are they they laughing? <laughs> you guys will see what I'm talking about. The first time you get called out to do a mission and you, you're looking at the face of the enemy, it's not going to be like being on the range. So it's gonna, there's going to be some feelings you're going to have that you've got to just fight through and continue with your mission. You can't stop. If you're scared, worried, you know, hungry, whatever, you, you just can't stop. You've got to continue with it. So that mission was a little nerve-wracking. I remember... Uh, I had shotgunned a door and I kicked it and I went all the way up to my crotch in that door because I kicked this door so hard so now I'm kind of stuck in the door. <laughs> and uh, the next several missions, things were better because you, you start to understand kind of the flow and what's going on and, and you're not, you know, you're still probably a little worried but you're not, you're not scared of what's happening there. So we were, I felt like we were pretty comfortable when we headed out on the, on the 3rd of October. Yeah, I wouldn't say overconfident I, yeah. I wouldn't say overconfident. I think we were confident in our ability to, to kind of handle things. Or maybe we were blissfully ignorant of, yeah. of what, was, what was to come. Um, I, I, you know, I just kind of what something, and I would say, you know, when you're in and you're faced with something like any, any more funny, but I would just say, you know, that thing with about the stick pen, you know, that's just, it is almost like running in sand. And you have, as a young leader, you have to kind of will yourself to keep pushing forward. Um, and it's different time. It hits people at different points, you know, depending on how tight it is. I, you know, um, maybe I was, just an, I was just dumb and I didn't realize until the stuff really yeah, we, started we, to fly. We talked about this a little bit this morning, and, and we think, or this is my opinion, when you're just worried about yourself, it's probably harder on you than it is when you're worried about all your people. So for you guys you'll kind of be lucky there because hopefully you're thinking more about the folks that you're leading than yourself. But as a Delta private, as an E6, I'm, I got nothing to worry about but keeping my gun zeroed and doing PT and, and you know, doing whatever. Uh, these guys, they had to worry about that larger picture. And I think that's something you all need to keep in mind when you're going into these situations is don't worry about yourself. You got a lot of other things that are much more important than yourself. The mission is way bigger than you are. And if you don't like that, then you're in the wrong business. Because this is about you doing a mission for the United States of America. It's not, you know, I'm going to start singing the national anthem here in a minute. But um, you got to have that perspective every time you go out that you've got these young men and women that you're leading that are looking for you for that guidance in the combat situation. You've got to be who they look to and say, yeah, I'm looking at Larry Perino. Because we ended up spending the night of the third together. Wasn't very romantic, but we spent the night out there in the battlefield together, and he was he was very calm during that crisis, and that helped to keep all of his guys calm as well. 
So going into August 3rd after doing six previous operations. October 3rd. Or, I'm sorry, October 3rd. Did you feel like you were, you know, short anything in terms of assets or capability that you, you know, wish you would have had there? Or is there kind of a consensus, hey, we have what we need over here? We had all that we were allowed to have. How about that? Yeah. When we did our training and rehearsals August through, or June through August, we always had AC-130s as part of the package. And we just assumed they would deploy with us. And when we got there, they weren't there. And to this day, I don't know who decided that uh, that, that would not be part of the package. But that was, uh, that was kind of a major all crap when you've got that kind of a weapons platform and that kind of vision in the night up above. And uh, you get there, and it's not there. And, and Lee, we also had an additional Ranger platoon also in the part of that initial train-up. And now, all of a sudden, you lost a reserve, a very large reserve, yeah. on a fire support platform. And uh, that had huge impacts later on when the, you know, the old crap happened. And yeah. then when you lost a reserve, then what was the plan then? Who was going to pull the reserve? Well, 10th Mountain was going to be the QRF. Now, they're yeah. not organic to our element, but they're going to be part, they're going to be part of this, this puzzle that we're dealing with here. But the commander, I mean, and that's, that's the other thing. So General Garrison was our commander, one of the greatest generals I've ever known, for sure. Uh, he, he looked at what we had, and he said, we can continue with the mission. So once the boss says that, that's it. We're going we're gonna to do it. We would have loved to have all those other assets, but you know the deal. There's certain nights out on the battlefield. You're not going to get everything you want because some other target has, uh, has higher priorities. So it, it may just be for a night. For us, it was several months that we didn't have those other assets, but we had to deal with that. I mean, you think you know, we built your plan on contingency. So you, know, you plan everything, you know, part of my language for the oh shit happening. But when it happens twice, I mean, come on. And so, yep. if we would have had that, we probably would have, you know, we could, we could, what if this thing to death, but. Yeah, so going into uh, October 3rd, then, so, I mean, uh, the mission came down, or the intelligence, you got the intelligence and decided you're gonna go launch. Uh, so you can just uh, describe, I guess, either, um, you know, from the headquarters perspective or, or the mission. So, what was kind of the, the plan for that, for the mission on October 3rd? Yeah, so that's widely misunderstood. Uh, is the mission that day was to capture two of IDEED's key lieutenants. So, since we got there two months earlier, we never knew where IDEED was. We never had that intelligence. So, we decided to take out his infrastructure. We captured his key financier. We took out the radio station he was using for broadcasting propaganda and instructions to his troops. Never knew where he was, so pulling up everything. And, and now we had what we consider to be actual intelligence to capture two of his key lieutenants. So th th that's one of the things that um, in the aftermath of the battle, when there were no journalists in Mogadishu, they said, uh, you know, failed mission, uh, did not capture ID. The, the fact is, that was not the mission that day. Yeah, and so what was the kind of the... the, the, the uh Infiltration so, plan. Yeah, well, let me walk you through kind of yeah. how, how that alert worked for us. So you're out running or... or There's a volleyball. Volleyball net. I mean, who, who the heck plays volleyball? Top Gun, we've all seen Yeah, that. Top Gun, you know, whatever. <laughs> Some over with Iceman over here. <laughs> and uh, the, the radio call comes in that, okay, we got a mission. So we all would run back. Head We're in our job. Ranger panties. Head to the our, jock. Head to the, the, the leadership would head to the jock, putting on their uniforms. We would grab our, our team leader, and our team leaders are NCOs, so we would grab uh, John Hale, all of his gear, that if he had left something behind, we were all jocked up. We'd head to the aircraft, they'd start the aircraft running, the co-pilot would, the crew chiefs would get the miniguns loaded, we'd get ready to go, fast ropes were rigged, everything was good to go. And then the team leader and the pilot would show up, 
And I, we were kind of joking about this earlier. The, the, the plan that day was done on a mimeograph machine. Does anybody know what a mimeograph machine is? <laughs> oh, yeah. Any, any history oh, majors if, here? Yeah, you do, because you're like 400 years old. But <laughs> if you go into the... If, right? Well, maybe not quite that old, but you know what I mean. Did you serve with General Lee when he was here with the... <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I gotta give you a hard time. No, the, so a mimeograph machine was a predecessor to a Xerox machine, and it would give you these really coarse... Uh, like purple. Yeah, purple copies. You would, I don't know if you, did that one crank or did That was a hand crank. Hand crank, and you, this stuff would pop out, and that's what they had. And we didn't really need that. We, we're, we know that when we get infill, we're gonna slide down the fast rope, breach a gate, and do our thing. So John Hale shows up, he pulls the, I had a secret on, which is like a suction cup peering piece, and he pulled that out and said, hey, when you get on the ground, there'll be a big gate, you gotta breach that. I was the team breacher, so I had some extra large charges for doing that. All of our team members had charges to, to blow gates. Um, and that's, that's the extent of our planning. Now, how fast that happened, I don't know, yeah. 10, 15 minutes? Well, when we trained up for it, we understood that, you know, and I thought, Lee, earlier today, you kind of really, really described it. We built a series of templates because you didn't know where this guy, you know, we didn't have days. We knew intelligence to act on it. You had to be very fast. So it could be in a structure, multi-story structure, single-story structure, a structure. It could be moving on a convoy on the ground. And we had these built these templates with how the assault force and the ranger security force would either isolate the target or, or it, and really to accomplish the mission. So that's the basis. And we, right. we rehearsed them over and over and over again. And so basically just you throw out a piece of train, really awful overhead shots. And it was like drawing a, in a sandlot, drawing a football play with, you know, basically a piece of blotchy paper and say, here's the, you know, here's the target and then draw, okay, little stick figure helicopters, here's chalk one, here's chalk two, here's chalk three, here's chalk four, face out. Yeah, and so you've got different levels of planning. So when Kyle says, you know, we'd run and do the planning, that is built on an existing plan because we had to have those templates because like Larry said, time is of the essence. And so Kyle, who like you said, he was a, he was a Delta private. He was a, a promotable staff sergeant at the time. He was so young he hadn't started shaving yet. So all, all Still doesn't shave. <laughs> Good point. All, all we would do is take the template, and now it's just a matter of, okay, A-team, you're in this MH6 little bird. Your primary breaching point is right here, so you're gonna land here, and your secondary or alternate breaching point is here. So that's what you draw up on a butcher paper, and then you take that and, and transfer it by hand to a piece of typing paper so you can run it through the mimeograph machine. So nobody thought to take their iPhone out and take a picture of it at that point in time. I don't know why. So that, that's, you know, the different levels of planning. Those of you who've been to Buckner know that if you're at squad level, you're looking at something different than you are at platoon level, different than you are at company level, and so on. So when you're at assault team level, all you need to know is what's my primary breaching point? What's my alternate? And do we have any idea, do we have any intel? Is there, is there a big gate there? Is, is there a door there that I got to breach? Do I have, can I use my shotgun? Do I use my explosives? And then you take a step back. Okay, where are the rangers going? We already know we've got uh, 12, 13 guys on the back of a Blackhawk, and they're going to provide the external security. So now you just draw up, okay, 
your bird is going to go right here, and, and your bird is going to go right here. So that's a plan. It takes less than five minutes to do because the majority of the planning has already been done. So you've got that template, and now you just modify that very quickly for the existing target that you're going to go in on. Right. In Iraq, it, if I can yeah. talk about that a little bit, we, we wanted to have a very consistent plan. So we same thing. We're in Iraq. I did five tours to Iraq with, uh, with the unit there. And we would have uh, those cookie cutter plans, but the only difference was now we had uh, a deco that we would fix every morning when we got ready to figure out who's going to go out on the flights or who's going to be on the vehicle. You don't know what that acronym means. Departure Airfield Commander. There you go. <laughs> Is this a test? No, no. I, I just, he said they don't. Oh, like, they don't, they don't know. know. Okay, so the Sergeant Major kind of runs that. He's going to deco people off of the off of the target to make sure you don't leave somebody behind. So he's going to be making sure you got the right count there. So that was one of my primary focuses, just to make sure, because you don't want to leave some dude pulling security facing the wrong direction. And, and that happens. That's happened on the battlefield. So we would, in 30 minutes, we would get alerted. We'd put together a plan. We would get overhead imagery. And we would back brief every ranger and every unit guy that was going on the objective. Now, this is Iraq. If the pilots were there, they were part of that brief as well. So think about that. 30 minutes from the time they say go until you are wheels up and you're going out there to spank some bad guy on the battlefield. Time-sensitive target, we may have to move faster if it's a vehicle moving or something like that. And I kind of look at what we did in Mogadishu as more of a time-sensitive target because mm -hmm. 30 minutes was too large of a window. So it had to be quick. So when I say we didn't have much of a plan, we actually had a good plan. We just didn't, we couldn't visualize what we were going to see because we didn't have a picture of it. Once we got on the ground, you know, the team leader says that's the building. That's all I need to know. I don't, want to, I don't want to lay out of this building. We're going to clear it. We're going to take it in manageable chunks and chew it up and, and do what we got to do. So it, it worked. I mean, it went... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a battle, it's effectively a battle drill if you're really highly trained. It's just a battle drill going in there. And like you said, if you have the inside plans, it, oftentimes that'll just screw you because then you, you're going to have this plan that you can't execute because as soon as you go through the first door or first window, something's there and it forces you to go to a different direction. So it's... Mm -hmm. It, right, it's it. You can you can really short circuit that kind of like you know you guys spend six hours doing a op order during CLDT and and brief this plan that's kind of eh, you know, uh, but by the time you're a platoon leader, been in the job for a year and you got the same squad leaders, it might take five minutes because you all know what to have to do because you've been you've done it a hundred times. Yeah, we did a con op, and we handed them one sheet and said we're out. That's that that's all the information you're getting because as long as the guys going on the ground know what's happening and the guys that are supporting in the rear know what's happening, who else needs to know? I mean, the most important thing is the guy going through the breach. You know, you guys out on the ground are going to need to know that plan and, and understand what your people, you expect of your people and then the people supporting you. But other than that, you know, a lot of times you see a lot of dog and pony shows. That it's, if it's not for the people that are conducting that mission in the, out on the battlefield or in the rear, uh, manning the radio or being in control of the situation, then it's, they're not nearly as important as the guys on the battlefield. So before turning the actions on the third, describe what the what was Mogadishu like? Like how wide are the streets? How big were the build, the <laughs> buildings? I mean, what was it like? There, there's no electrical grid in Mogadishu at this time, so you've got. Remember, I said there's a civil war. Now the population of the city has grown two x three x. So you've got all these uh, make do shelters out there for all the refugees that came into the city. So it's a city of roughly a quarter million people, now over a million. So you, you have an overhead uh, photo taken before the crisis, and it shows pretty normal grid for a city. But since then, 
every building has had a lean-to built on it. So now the, the street is about half its width. And then the lean-tos have lean-tos built on them. So a lot of them, you can't even get a vehicle down. So most of the traffic is foot traffic or donkey carts. And you've got all these open cooking fires. So you've always got this continuous haze over the city. You don't have to worry about flying into electrical lines because there are none. You, you don't have a power grid. So it's, a, it's a, uh, almost a medieval setting there. You've got open cooking fires, you've got open sewage, you've got livestock everywhere, and you've got a lot of people out walking around with literally nothing to do but go out and walk around. And a good percentage of those people are well armed because you've got the Civil War going on at the same time. So it's a, it's a very different environment. Also, because it's a clannish society and the Civil War, it was, there were different areas and we had to learn pretty quick of who was where. So there are areas you know if you crossed into it, you're probably going to get into a gunfight. You know, if the other person, they wave at you. The other ones, they'll you know, give you the finger. I mean, or something worse, you know. Um, and, and so that thing was, you know, the Crips and the Bloods. I mean, it was just like, yeah. and there was dividing lines between streets and the people knew not to cross. And it was hot. That's it. it was freaking hot. It was... We had started to take out our plates because it was so hot and you're crawling over walls and I put a plate in after the 3rd of October. I never took it out again and I even started wearing one on the back as we, were, we got the ability to do that. But it was really, it was miserable hot. Which, it's not just bad on the ground, it's also bad for your, your helo lift capability. So there's days that the birds couldn't lift what they needed to because the air got too thin from the heat or however that works. when you. They've Rocket had, scientists will have to, yeah, have to tell about, <laughs> about that. I just do what I'm told. And then the structure. <laughs> yeah, rarely. <laughs> and the uh, buildings there are what, mostly one or two story kind of buildings? Yeah, or was it yeah. the old cinder block? Or how would you describe the kind of the... It was, it was like adobe construction almost. And we we've came to find out that if you stand behind a wall long enough and it takes enough incoming rounds, that wall will disintegrate. So mostly one or two story. There were a couple of uh, four and five story structures there, which we actually used for landmarks, uh, like the Olympic Hotel. But mostly it was one and two story mud construction. Yes, yeah, so I guess turn into October 3rd, then you want to uh, talk about the infiltration and the operation and then kind of how things well, went from there. Well, you know, and everyone was different, but based off the street. So because it, we, we, we had infill points, then the primary of the assault force was going to go by air. The Ranger trucks were going to go by air, but we realized there were no, no viable LZs very close to pull out by air, and that was always a preference. Um, and you couldn't choose whether you went day or night, by the way. It's just when the target would present itself. So the plan was the assault force and the blocking force would go, uh, would go in by air and rope in to the targets. Meanwhile, there was a convoy of Rangers with up-armored Humvees and uh, five-ton uh, five trucks sandbagged in, you know, for all the, the guys um, that we'd pull out of the target, basically would link up with us on the ground in Exville. So that, 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 was, that was the plan going in. So when we, when we went out, our plan was, you know, I was told, I'm gonna breach this big gate. So we flew out, we got put in at the wrong intersection because you couldn't tell, you really couldn't tell in that area the difference. GPS didn't work real well in that area. So we fast rope in, there's a gate. I shotgunned it because the uh, wasn't a real big gate. We made entry and the team leader said, no, it's that building there. It first said, go this way. Nope, that's the building. We hit a building, we went 
cleared two floors and it was just nothing significant to report there. We knew it wasn't our target building at that point. There's nobody there. And uh, when we came out from that building, that's when things started to get exciting for us because we strong point in an intersection behind that building. And that's when we started. Uh, I saw a guy run across the street with an AK and we uh, engaged him. Once he was down, his buddies kept trying to run up and get his, his AK to get in the fight. And that's where, you know, things like the, the donkey that came up and got, the donkey got shot because it has six legs because the guy was hiding behind the donkey trying to sneak up to get that rifle. So there was a lot of things that were happening fast where we were at. Uh, we still weren't, we were still kind of in the having confidence of what we were doing there. We had a guy try to emplace a machine gun against our position. Uh, Earl Fillmore, one of our guys that would be killed later in the day, he stepped around the corner with the 203 and, and eliminated that threat. And then at that point, the team leader said, okay, I know now where the, where the target building's at. He got himself oriented to the battlefield a little bit better. So we crossed the street, went over four or five walls in the back of these buildings, and finally got to the target building. Yeah, and in the meantime, um, and really once they went in, once the assault force went in, the ranger, the four ranger birds that were strong pointing, strong pointing the, the target building came in almost right on their heels. Um, we were all put in the, at least three of the four were put in the right position. The fourth one, uh, which was in Tom DiMaso's platoon, um, that Matt Eversman um, was, the, um, was the chalk leader. Actually, because of the brownout was so bad, had to be dropped, but they knew it, you know, like a block, a block, two blocks back behind it. Uh, and it was a real high rope, and that was one where, uh, we, that was really probably the first casualty we had is, you know, Private Blackburn, uh, Todd Blackburn fell about 60 feet, um, missed the rope, whatever, but he fell about 60 feet, and so he was pretty badly wounded right there um, on the ground. So, so a little off, but close enough to still be supported. Um, and it was, you know, we, it, we didn't realize anything was gonna go sideways, you know, um, but there was like a kind of a civil defense plan that was, that was starting right. to be put into effect. And it was, and how I described it, it was a slow buildup. It wasn't all of a sudden we, we realized that we were in a big hornet's nest. It just kind of started building. I, I think we knew we were going into a hornet's nest, but the key was get in and out before they wake up. Right, right. And, and uh, they, they eventually woke up. But just to take a step back and set the stage a little, the rangers were all in Blackhawks. You know, those are incredibly powerful birds on dirt streets, so they can't land. So the question, well, why are you fast roping in? Because you can't get that close, it creates a brownout. Plus, remember I said you got all these shacks and make-do dwellings, uh, dubious building codes, their roofs would tend to come up if you flew too close, so you don't want anything in the rotors. So the assault team is in MH6 Little Birds. They're, they're the sports cars of the helicopter world. They can get in and out, but the Rangers are in the Blackhawks, so they got to rope in. And then that creates its own set of planning conditions because, like you said, you had a guy fell off the rope for whatever reason, and that's our first casualty. Now we got to get him off the battlefield. So you got all these plans and contingencies and branches and sequels, and the leaders have to make decisions instantaneously. And for those, I mean, most of you, I'm sure you know what fast rope is, but just think of like, a, you know, it's just a rope hanging out the back of a, you know, the helicopter that's probably about, what, three inches in diameter or so, uh, and you just put your hands and your, and your boots on there and you're just sliding down the thing. With all the, right, keep in mind, you got your body armor on, uh, all your weapons, all your ammunition, right? So you're carrying a lot of weight going down this yeah, thing. So if you're Private Blackburn and for whatever reason you missed your handle, then you're going 60, 90 feet 
way faster than the human body is intended to. When we, when we finally got to the target building, everything, the, the lieutenants we were after were already secured. They were flight scuffed and bagged. And we were waiting on the convoy to pull up. Everything was still kind of normal. Convoy pulls up, and at some point in there, Super 6-1 gets shot yeah. down. Well, we're really, we're, we're watching. They're loading, we're loading. We're getting the countdown. Uh, even told us the Rangers at the black position, police up your fast ropes, start bagging them up. We're going to start moving up. And we were just right about ready to exfil. Uh, we're still, we're, at this point though, we're still shooting because at this point we're having to engage with folks, but it's still not very heavy, but we're still having to engage. Uh, the Somalis would do tactics like push kids out front trying to mark our positions and point us out. We had to scatter them. Um, you know, you can see that. You know, we had a, a guy that, I guess he was a big John Wayne fan. He, uh, he had a shirt he put on a stick and he brought it around a corner. <laughs> and then he brought it around a corner and everybody's like, huh. <laughs> and then he stepped out, and I don't know how many dudes shot him, but <laughs> he, uh, one, one less John Wayne fan yeah. in Somalia. He so, doesn't like John Wayne anymore. So the, the operation from the first infill of the assault force to Super 6-1 getting shot down was 20 minutes. So uh, think about that. I said earlier, speed was of the essence. So you got the assault force going in here. All we knew is it's a compound with a wall around it, multiple buildings, multiple stories. They got to go in and clear every building because each one of these two lieutenants had a, about a dozen bodyguards. Their sole focus in life is to eliminate any threat to their principal. So you got about two dozen well-armed guys in there who can't wait to kill you. And you're going to go in not knowing exactly where you're going. Police up these two dudes, then get out of there before the rest of the militia can respond, which is estimated to be around 3,000 people. And we have significantly less than that. So it was a textbook operation for that 20 minutes, and we're in the process of doing the exfil when Super 6-1 gets shot down. And so I guess right before he got shot down, did, did Sergeant Stuker leave with Blackburn in the three-vehicle convoy, or how did that fit into it? Or really, you didn't, it was trans, you didn't really notice any of that going on? I couldn't see, because I was on the other side. All I knew is, you know, they were treating him, and I think they were moving the vehicle to pick him up. Yep. Um, and and I think I think that may have that probably is what happened. They knew they had to get him back. So, yeah, yeah, they the the medic there said we got to get him out now. He's not going right. to last. And so they decided to break off three vehicles independently and get him back. And they they had a heck of a fight getting from the target area back to the the airfield where we had our headquarters. And that's set where up. Dominic Pilla was 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 uh, fatally fatally wounded. Yeah. Right, and then so when Super Six One goes down, then what happens? What's the well, how far away was it from your? I mean, it, it was it, he would, They were, I don't know. They were two to three ten, blocks. Yeah, they were like ten, fifteen degrees off top of us. There, we we heard it get hit. We watched him auto rotate to the, I guess, it'd be the north of our position there. And when uh, there was no, there was there wasn't even a discussion because we all knew the contingency, and the contingency was that if. We had an aircraft go down in the city. We were going to move on foot to that crash site and secure the crash site. That's it. There's, there didn't, we didn't have to have a discussion on the battlefield because that's the contingency. Why not vehicles? Well, because you can't fit the vehicle down these alleyways. They're too narrow. We got Humvees and things that are a little bit wider. So it was just a matter of de determining the order of movement. And yeah, Lieutenant Perino, they said, you got the lead. Well, <laughs> right? first of all, uh, Tom DiDomaso's, uh, his chalk, which was behind mine, they were actually, they could see it. It was almost a straight shot where, where he was. And 
when they first went down, half of his team actually just saw it and took it on their, almost on themselves just to start running. Tom goes, well, I'm not going to, he said, well, link up with us. And Tom goes, I'm not going to split my force and stay here. We're, we're linking up. So Tom, on his own, ran, and it was, a, it was a great call on his part and everybody else's part to, to move to the crash site. While they're doing that, they're also, uh, we had one CSAR combat search and rescue bird with another 15, it was a mixture of, of operators and rangers and uh, uh, PJs, and a couple PJs. Yeah, a couple PJs. A couple PJs, the fast rope. Like so they got, rescue medics Yeah, the so Force. they actually fast rope at the target right when Tom and his guys at the same time, which was, which was necessary. In the meantime, because where I was, uh, it was basically rangers, you know, get up in front and start moving now this way and then link up at the crash site. And so we just started leapfrogging. Where's the vehicles? They're just gonna be behind us. They'll catch up. We, we, weren't, we weren't exactly sure where the bird was. We knew the general direction. So yeah. when, when they took the lead and we started going north, that's when all hell broke loose. We started getting heavy, heavy fire. Uh, one of the guys on the team I was on was killed at that point. He, I didn't see that happen, you did, but uh, we had actually moved forward. So I was almost by, by y'all when, uh, uh, Smith was was shot, so we uh, we started doing what we do there. We had cleared a building. Uh, Woody and I, a guy from the assault team I was on, we were separated from the rest of our assault team because of Earl getting shot, and they were working on him. He was he was already dead, but they had they were trying to get him out of the street, and uh, we cleared a small courtyard, came back out, told these guys to get in, and and that's when, uh, well, I guess before that, Jamie Smith got shot. Because yeah. uh, what happens? We moved up on a parallel time, and right when we were moving, and what, what, what he's talking about is, we were as close as we got to, you know, and you hit it right, you know, it was a race at that point. Because you have all the Somalis, the SNA, the militia, racing to get to the helicopter, and you had us racing to get to the helicopter. We beat them, um, but boy was that, it was, it was like walking into a, a wall of lead or you know or just you're almost in a shooting gallery and so we were moving up and we were just discussing it we wound up going into a corner which we didn't know at the time was right at the corner just on the other side of this giant wall was the crash didn't know that there was no smoke there was no fire there was nothing to indicate that there was yeah. a bird there we were within 20 yards of it and we didn't even know so yeah. you got about three blocks total or yeah, about three or four blocks. And then how long did that movement, do you think, took? I mean, you might have a better sense than these guys would. It didn't take very long. It, it was a couple of minutes at most. Yeah. I mean, how, how fast can you run It was like blocks? an airborne shuffle with, with guns. And then, like, as you said, you mean, you're taking casualties as you're going, so the lead element is getting there. Then how does that slow down movement, trying to move with the casualties through the street? Well, we stopped. I mean, we, well, I say we. I didn't know where the crashed helo was at even though it's literally 20 yards from where I'm standing. And I'm working on a, on a ranger casualty. He was shot high in the femoral artery. He also hit his, his uh, um, pelvic girdle there. So there was a lot of bone fragments and stuff. So I had my fingers in him trying to, to slow that bleeding. And then Woody and, and uh, was Lieutenant Perino then, he, uh, they grabbed him. He was a big guy. He was a 203 gunner. So he, he was a heavy dude, pulled him in behind cover and then they were zinging rounds off the wall right beside us, and we we're catching a little frag off that. Realized they weren't just pot shots, they were shooting a group on the wall. So we pulled him a little farther in the courtyard, got the guys out of the street, and then continued to pull, try to pull security and 
I mean, our focus right then for, for us, at least for Woody and I, was try to, to provide first aid. We didn't have a medic there yet. What I would say is we took the majority of our casualties, especially those ones that, were, that couldn't move on their own, right at mm -hmm. the vicinity of the clinic, where we wound up strong pointing by the crash site. So we really didn't have to evacuate. I, uh, one of the guys in my platoon, Sergeant Aaron Williamson, was caught some shrapnel off a grenade that was flipped over a wall. The guy did remember to pull the pin on that one, I think. And uh, <laughs> different guy. Yeah, different guy. And and but that was when we were still in contact with the vehicles. Now remember the vehicles. If you watch the movie, it was kind of confusing. I'm not going to even because I wasn't there. All I know is they were there, and then they're not. But we were able to put him to the to the vehicle. We just kept moving. But everybody that was that I think that was moving was that was wounded, especially at the point where you couldn't move them. They couldn't move on their own. Was in the vicinity of the crash site anyway. So we didn't have to move them. Does that mean so? Yep. Yeah, so at this point, everybody's kind of consolidated to the crash site and you're waiting for the, the exfil, right? Is well, yes and no. We're waiting on exfil, but the reason we couldn't exfil is because Cliff Walcott's body was crushed inside the aircraft. So Super 6-1, when it crashed, crushed him, we were not leaving. Him and the co-pilot. Yep, him and the co-pilot. We, we, we weren't going to leave until we recovered their bodies because we'd seen what they would do to our guys if we left them there. Right, so, at this point, like the, 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 the CSAR crew, did they have like the jaws of life or any of those no. to get it right? Mm -hmm. So by the time we got to Bosnia, by the time you know, I was a detachment commander in like 98, 99 in Bosnia, supporting the combat search and rescue mission into Kosovo, we had those as standard mm -hmm. equipment, right? And so we learned them things That's from That's one of the there. lessons learned. Right, yeah. but then how do you pull someone out from here? And so they're struggling with this the whole time there, right? And, and simultaneously with this, the vehicular convoy, which was Plan A for the exfil from the target site is trying to get to the crash site to pick everybody up and get out. But they're, they're being vectored from above by the command and control helicopter, and it's borderline impossible um, to get a, a vehicle when you don't know how wide the street is. So you tell them, okay, take a right here, and you take a right, and then all of a sudden the street necks down to the point where you can't go any further. So now you've got multiple vehicles all being shot at continuously, and now you've got to start backing up. So just put yourself in that convoy, and then the helicopter's doing a racetrack, so much of the route can't be seen because it's occluded by other buildings. So you've got all these complicating factors going in, and eventually the convoy got so shot up that the commander said, okay, we, we got to limp on back. This is, this is not working for us. So we got the, the element there at the crash site, and now the convoy is out of the picture after a while of driving around, getting shot at. And now we gotta figure out, okay, how do we get these guys out of there? Oh, by the way, don't forget, don't forget the same time, Super 6-1 goes down. So everybody thinks six, two aircraft. We had multiple aircraft that were actually damaged. You have Super 6-4, which was my bird, which was when Super 6-2 was hit, they brought my bird over the top of the original target building and then he gets hit and winds up crashing mile or two miles away from there. And that's, so now we've got two crashes now. Yeah, we actually had five Blackhawks shot that day. Most people aren't aware of that. Um, three of them made it back to the airfield okay. Two of them went down in less than nice neighborhoods. And so prior to this though, there, once a Blackhawk had been hit by an RPG prior to this mission, 10th Mountain Division bird got hit a week or two prior. So they had broken the code on, on volley firing RPGs, same technique as you use a shotgun to go bird hunting instead of a rifle. So they're volley firing RPGs 
and brought down a 10th Mountain Division helo. Right. And so that's like Kyle said, we knew what they do to the bodies. They, they pulled the bodies out and desecrated them in horrible ways. So that's one of the reasons uh, we got to get there first and, and we can't leave these guys behind. Right. So as you're learning from the operating environment, so is the enemy with their tactics sure. as well. So by this time, the convoy is gone. And then where, what are you guys what are you guys doing? Well, we're, we're still continuing to treat Jamie Smith, Corporal Smith, um, and we're we're basically strong pointing it and buckling down and and realizing the bird is right there. We had an RPG hit our building. Uh, at that point, I wasn't treating the casualty, and I grabbed Larry and I said, "All right, I'm going to kick in this door. You go left. I'm going right. Don't shoot me," because we could hear these. We had it was more like, "Don't shoot me." Yeah, I got it. <laughs> and uh, that pin was still up there, you know. <laughs> so. Uh, we, when we cleared that building, we heard women and children in there. So when the RPG hit, they screamed. Uh, we went in there, cleared that just to make sure there was no bad guys in there, pushed all the women and children back into a, a safe room. I guess you guys would call it a safe space, but um, <laughs> we, uh, we put a couch. I, you know I'd get that in there. <laughs> that was good. We, we, we had to put a, that in there. Yeah. We had to put a couch in front of the door there, just to, and they stayed in there the rest of the night. We didn't hear another peep out of them. Uh, but after that, then we, we kind of, as things continue, we realize exactly where we're at. Got a little bit better uh, essay on the battlefield there, and we just knew we were going to be there for a while. And there were some calls. We talked about this this morning. You know, the highs and lows of what you're hearing and what, you know, what calls should you make, which calls shouldn't you make. I'd heard my team leader come on the radio, and they, uh, the commander, Scott Miller, he come on the radio and said, uh, "Now the commander in Afghanistan." Yeah, now yeah, now he's big Sarge or big Cheese or whatever you call him over there, big general dude, right? Is that the proper terminology? Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, I'm probably the only non politically correct guy up here. Just if you're yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you're you're close, but so uh, he but, makes a call. He says, "Alpha One, you know what's your status?" John Hale comes on the radio. He says, "I've got this many wounded and one KIA," and when I heard that. In my mind, I justified it as a ranger had been killed. Very unfortunate, that's a sad deal, but wasn't one of my buddies. And then five minutes later, Scott Miller come back on the radio and said, Alpha One, say again your status. This many wounded, one KIA. And then he said, Who, what's the call sign of the KIA? He said Alpha Two. When I heard Alpha Two, because I hadn't seen Earl get shot, I knew that Earl Fillmore was dead. So at that point, you think, you think about what your motivation level is, and then you find out that a member of your team is dead. What's that going to do to your motivation? It's going to bring you, you know, it's going to bring you down. A little bit later, John Hale came back on the radio. He said, "All right, all, all elements. This is Alpha One. This is what we're going to do." And I heard that. I'm like, "Okay, if he's back in the fight, he's got his best friend laying there, dead. You know, if he's back in the fight, we got to get back in the fight." And and I did some pretty serious praying at that time too. So uh, good Lord was looking out for me and. We continue with the fight at that point. So at this time, it's getting dark. The intensity of fire is coming up, but it's great because we own the night. Except we don't have night vision goggles. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, yeah. some, some brave souls climbed into Super 6-1 and grabbed the pilot's, pilot's nods. Of course, it's, you know, they're not mounted, having to hold them with their hands and uh, shoot at the same time. Right, know. so this is hindsight again, but right, I mean, the decision was made with the night vision goggles. Yeah, yeah, we, they were, that was kind of a new deal to us. We, I mean, we didn't have NVGs 
couple years prior to that. Nothing that we could mount on our we helmet. We had right had now. them, but you wore them around your neck, <laughs> yeah. and they were cumbersome and awkward, and uh, they they fill up with dust as, as soon as you're in that environment. So we knew we were on a 20-minute op in and out. So, you, you know, when you're wearing 75 pounds of lightweight gear <laughs> with, before your rucksack goes on, then uh, unfortunately you're looking to make some cuts in some places and uh, you know how heavy ammo and HE and everything else comms are so yeah we don't need our nods but you know just imagine this clunky thing bouncing off your chest and every time you try to do something it comes up and hits you in the face and uh, then you you put it on and you have to take your helmet off to put it on and then you have to take it off to clean the dust off the lenses. Right, so, it's not like now we have all these nice helmet mounts and all this, yeah. right? I mean, things. Well, are but at that time we had the flip downs. Yeah. We had just got them though, so there was just we were. It was a. We we're still kind of in the learning phase with them. We didn't have enough water. You know, that we probably didn't have enough ammo. There's a lot of things that you look. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But the good thing is we learned those lessons. We passed them on, and now we've got, you know, the guys in the battlefield. If they're in Afghanistan, Iraq, or wherever, I mean, it's. They're direct descendants of what happened in Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. And us coming back and saying, hey, we're Rangers, we're the unit, we, we, we learned these lessons, how can we be better the next time we go to battle? Because you don't know when it's gonna be. You know, you're sitting in this room right now, if, if you stay in the military for 10 years, I guarantee you're gonna, you're gonna be in... Somewhere that's happen. not where you think it'll be. Yeah, yep. you just never know what's gonna happen. I mean, Mogadishu, Somalia, I, there's no way I could have found that on a map. You know, six months prior to that, I would have been like, Mogadishu, where, what the, I never heard of this. Maybe I wasn't quite that dumb, but you get the idea that you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, so you guys are consolidating yeah. or attempting to consolidate as you kind of spread amongst two blocks between the Ranger company and, and, and the, and the unit operators. And then back at the headquarters, what are you guys trying to do to get them exfilled at this point? Cause the, the ground vehicle convoys return to base and you're, What's, yeah, what are they trying to do? We were What's taking multiple steps. We cobbled together whatever vehicles were there and uh, whatever people weren't on the initial assault and sent them out, but they quickly got shot up badly and just couldn't make it there. They tried multiple routes and, and whenever they got close to the target site, they got shot to pieces. So we also, as, as soon as the first helo went down, General Garrison activated the Quick Reaction Force, which was another one of our contingencies. So we had the 10th Mountain Division there, 2nd Battalion, 14th Infantry, and they came over to our location. They weren't far away, but we were separate locations. Was it pretty quick? It was, yeah. yeah, just a few yeah. minutes. It wasn't too bad. And so um, we pointed out to them where the target is and uh, the fact that they need to go there and pick up our people. General Garrison turned to me and said, go with them. So, uh, you know, three-word uh, op order and commander's intent, I, I knew because we had worked together for years, and uh, I echo what Kyle said, General Garrison's one of the finest leaders I've ever had. So go with them meant to me, your job is to go out there and develop the situation and get the desired end result. So that's what we did. We went out uh, with the 10th Mountain Division's unarmored Humvees, uh, drove into a pretty well laid ambush, got shot up pretty good, and uh, the commander said, okay, let's uh, let discretion be the better part of valor here and figure out a plan B, and, and that's what we did. So you guys are back then at base, and there's no plan for And then what, what are you guys hearing on your end? What's kind of the expectation? Well, after a while, yeah. quickly, at least you know, he's listened to his, you know, we were talking about this either. And, and, and the hardest part is viewing that battle from where you're at. Um, it's kind of like watching a football game through a soda straw or a toilet paper tube. And so it's the constant struggle 
to piece together, you know, we didn't have Blue Force Tracker. You didn't, you, 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 you just don't have it. And so uh, it's, it's trying to piece together where are we at and, and knowing yourself and what's going on. So that was, that was kind of a struggle. It's a constant struggle for information uh, to kind of figure out where, where you are. And so once I realized quickly, like, where are the vehicles? They were right behind us. <laughs> what the hell? And they said, well, they're getting together a, and it was like, our, you know, first of all, when we realized we couldn't get a medevac, couldn't get anybody in to, to evac Corporal Smith. He winds up passing away uh, at uh, about 20, 30 hours. We're saying, they're cobbling together a relief convoy. It's coming. Does anybody have a time? You know, and it's, it's a, this is a gargantuan task that they're having to slap together in little to no time. Yeah, so our, our plan B after the first failed attempt to go out there and get them was to put together an international task force with Malaysian armored personnel carriers and Pakistani tanks. So we've got uh, at least three different languages involved here. Units that have not worked together, they have different SOPs and, and different ways of doing things, and uh, send that out. And, it, and that took a few hours to get that convoy put back together. So now I'm writing a comment in the back of a Soviet-made armored personnel carrier, which whoever thought that would happen. And, and this time we're able to get out there and get to the, the <coughs> two different crash sites at this point in time. That's funny, I remember uh, my company commander saying, they're on their way, and I'm like, <laughs> I just said, kind of flippantly, yes sir, I can hear them. Because it was just like a rolling firefight that got louder and louder and louder. You could and hear it. would fade away, and they'd keep in the fight, and they'd get loud, yeah, it just kept going, and all of a sudden, there comes Matt Ryerson walking in with a quickie saw in one hand and a car 15 in the other, and I was like, this guy's my hero, <laughs> <laughs> so. And then so at that point, you loaded up the convoy and fight the way back. Not so fast, Lucky. Right? <laughs> and you know his call sign's Lucky. Did you guys know that? Do they know why? I don't think Because so. a cat has nine lives, and sometimes you call your cat Lucky. I was putting him through OTC, and we're in a barn. Tell him what OTC is. Operator training course. I'm his instructor. He looked up to me like a father. <laughs> We got a barn, and in a barn, you got Haymow doors at the end, so when you hey, to open... Be, to be fair, how many doors have you gone out in your entire life? Have any of them... Not have, not, okay, had any so of them not had something I, I on the other side? I grew up in South Dakota, so I'd been in a barn before. <laughs> they clear the first floor, they clear the second floor. He goes to the door that leads to nothing, and he opens it, and he runs out, and it's like Wiley e. Coyote in the air. <laughs> <laughs> And he holds up a sign and says, oops. Yeah. It was like, I stood still. It was like I was still moving, turning the corner, clearing the corner, and all I could think is, oh, crap. So he falls 15 foot, crumpled mess. He pops back up. I'm good. Yeah, somebody, pulls out, like, a, somebody pulls out the white lens flashlight. Are you okay? I'm like, turn that thing off. We got to Xville. I was like, this guy is, he's not real smart, but he's lucky. <laughs> so that's where that happened. No, you're loading the vehicle. <laughs> you, you can so never when, escape when the, your call sign. Yeah, so when the, the, uh, when the vehicles arrived, my opinion was the vehicles are here, we're going to load on the vehicles, and we're out of here. But not so fast. Once the, once the wounded and dead were loaded, there, was, there wasn't any room for any of us. Oh, so. oh by the way... People had a quickie saw, and, and you hit right. Quickie saws work really good. It's like a very heavy... Um, it's a construction a, saw. It's a construction saw that works on everything except for this, except, except for Black, Black Hawk. <laughs> uh, and the hard part was, you know, we still had people, you know, we had Cliff Walcott still in 
that, then we had to get them out. And so that, it was a race against daylight because everybody had an internal clock going, I really hope we're out of here in a cover of darkness because it's going to get loud pretty quick, louder. Yeah, so we, we didn't exactly drive up to the crash site. We had a plan where we're going to go to a rally point equidistant between the two crash sites. Then we'll take a 10th Mountain Infantry Company to each one of the crash sites and leave one at the rally point as a reserve element. So I went with the company that went to the first crash site because that's where all our troops are. And I figured one of my primary responsibilities is to prevent fratricide. And we had to dismount the vehicles because the Somalis had a number of burning roadblocks out there. And the vehicles couldn't drive through them. So you dismount us guys and we go tear them apart. And then we just stay dismounted down to the next burning roadblock, providing mutual support between the vehicles and the dismounted troops. Technique used a lot uh, starting in World War I when tanks were first introduced. So we had about 800 meters uh, of that distance to travel uh, on foot for some of us. And about halfway there, we got bogged down. We, we took some heavy fire, stopped, rectified the situation, but then we lost some inertia. So the company commander told me that the lead APC refused to go any further. The Malaysian there said, nope, that's it, we've had enough. And he said, I don't want to go forward without that armored support. So I told Matt Ryerson, get in that lead APC and make him go forward. I'll just, you know, I'll go up to the front of the line and get these infantry troops to go. So it was easy. I just went up and said, let's go. So American soldiers, you show them some positive leadership, they will respond in, in the desired manner. I don't know what Matt Setter did to get that thing moving forward, but it was don't very comforting to have that thing rolling along beside me there. Yeah, and then another thing I want to add quickly about Matt, Matt was killed a few days later in a mortar attack. So uh, he, he paid the ultimate price too, but he was one of the guys that was just, I mean, he was. Yeah, Matt was an assault team leader in on the initial assault. Then he accompanied the uh, lieutenants and their bodyguards back to the uh, base. And then he went in with me on that, that later mission, not a scratch. And he'd been out there in the fight uh, as much as anybody. And then uh, two days later, on the 6th of October, he was killed in a mortar attack. So basically at that time, I mean, loading the vehicles and then fighting the way back and make it back before daylight? Well, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> it was kind of surreal. You know, well, the plan we were talking, we didn't get a chance to talk about the, the and they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to run out. What? You know, uh, and the APCs are going to roll with us. Right, so you've been there all night, fighting up all night, and then now you've got to run all the way back. Well, we just didn't know. They go, we're right. going to the Pakistani Stadium. I go, well, that's five miles that way. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, you know, it was a break, a little bit, not that bad. We just figured, we'll figure it out. But the whole idea was, we'll stay next to the APCs. The APCs will provide covers. We're running down. So they go, we're ready to go. Yep, APCs just take off. We're like, we're staring at each other, and as the sun rises, and it was kind of a real surreal moment, they go, hey, little birds are going to make one more pass. And it was, it was kind of like the movie you know, Apocalypse Now or something. You saw on a parallel street, you saw cobras just running down the street with their guns blazing, you know, chewing up the streets parallel to us, and then little birds just popped right over our heads and then lob rockets, you know, empty their pods, and then we just take off running, and we bound. And that's, and that's where I, you, the rally point, right by the Olympic Hotel, that bus station. Mm -hmm. And that's where we wound up. We moved there and then, then everybody could transfer onto vehicles. Yeah, so imagine, you know, you've got uh, 200 or so soldiers, dismounted soldiers, and you've all done road marches, you understand the accordion effect. So those APCs were about two inches off each other's bumper. 
Now, the, the lead one never got out in front of the troops, but the troops spread out. So the guys in the back, the Rangers, said, hey, we just got left behind. But it was a, an 800-meter run, trot. I was old and slow then, so it wasn't a run, believe me. Uh, back to our rally point. And uh, at, at that point in time, I got an up from each one of the Ranger lieutenants and from Scotty Miller and from the 10th Mountain Division. Everyone had everyone present accounted for, so we all loaded the vehicles. And we got to that location. That's when, uh, beside the vehicle that we were going to load on, one of the 10th Mountain guys had been shot, and they were working on him. He had, I believe, a sucking chest wound at that time, and he ended up passing away a couple days later. But he was one of the guys from 10th Mountain that came in to help us and and also was killed. Yeah, they, they lost two soldiers. And, and the story of Black Hawk Down, the book, and subsequently the movie, was basically told through the eyes of Rangers, because the, the Delta guys aren't allowed to talk to the press, and the, the Task Force 160 pilots aren't allowed to. So you've got a distinct perception of that. And most of them weren't aware that the 10th Mountain Division was even there. So their, their story largely went unnoticed. And uh, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today if it wasn't for them. Yeah, those guys in the, the 160th, they saved our skin. I mean, it was, they did gun runs all night. They flew 18 hours straight. I mean, they, they would land, grab a bottle of water, you know, maybe a power bar, more ammo, more gas, more rockets, and they were right back out there to support us. So for 18 hours, they flew their aircraft. Yeah, so I mean, um, I want to save some time, you know, some audience questions. You guys think about them. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, what, were, what was one of the key lessons each of you learned from there? I mean, I'll, I'll start. I mean, like, so when we went to Afghanistan in 2001 for the first time, right, still some of the same debates, right? When you go in there on the operation, do you carry as much ammo and everything as you possibly can? Or, right, or is it the kind of the fight light, right? The lighter you are, the more survivable you are. And you understand the, 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 the importance of body armor. But I had snipers, and, and they told me, hey, if we cannot get down behind our weapon with a front plate in, so well then just don't wear the front plate, right? But then, it, but you got this other history up against you. So right, there's always going to be these mm -hmm. tough choices you have to make out there. So what were some? What was like a, one of the key lessons? I mean, we talked well, about. I think some that, of them. that's one of them. I mean, we would have, we would go in Iraq, and we would have inside of our Panders, which is like a striker, just a different armored vehicle. Right. We, so that was a lesson, right? Instead of having just the right five-ton vehicle with sandbags, think of it as a kind of a older MRAP or something. So we, we didn't fight off of our kit. We fought off the vehicle. So we had water bottles that were frozen in there that we could drink those while we're driving. We didn't have to take anything off our gear. We had magazines that were Velcroed to the side of the vehicle so that we could just, if you're shooting at somebody, you could just drop that mag, grab another one, and, and when you dismounted, you still had everything that you had. And then beyond that, we had go rucks. And inside of our, our, our go bag, we would have extra whatever we needed. And, you know, chow was not a huge priority because you can go a long time without food. But we definitely had water um, and ammo. And, you know, if you needed that bag, you could drop it by the, the entrance to a building or you could leave it on the vehicle or whatever. It kind of depended on the guy, what situations he'd been through. You could see some guys that if they got more than like 10 foot from their go bag, they're like, they want to suck their thumb <laughs> a little bit there. But, I mean, if you have that experience, you, you learn from that. You're going to you're going to be better the next time you go out because you got all these things going uh, through your head. I think we had, we also had a better, um, a better, a better planning process, more efficient planning process so that everybody would know, you know, all the Rangers would know what we were thinking. We know what they're thinking. And that way, if, if something happened to a vehicle, we knew that other guys could step in and take that, 
that position. And of course, mm -hmm. medical. Yeah. Medical is probably my biggest, my biggest pet peeve. So if you look at all the stuff that you guys, and I don't know if you're issued IFACs or not yet, but if you've got uh, combat gauze, if you have a tourniquet, you know, a chest seal, things like that, a lot of that came directly from this, this fight. Uh, everything down to the way that your combat gauze is folded. It's not rolled up, it's folded so that you can pull it out. This has all been thought through. So when you pick that up, this isn't some good idea fairy that flew in and gave them that idea. This is a combat medic or, or a guy like one of us that had worked on somebody on the battlefield and said, what do I need the next time I go there? And that doesn't just apply in this room. This applies to schools across America, in your own vehicle, law enforcement. So there's the, medic, the medical thing, I think is, is to me, yeah. is probably the, no, biggest, the biggest thing that we learn. And everybody here, I mean, you guys probably all know how to use an AED. Who cares? You're not going to have an AED in combat. What you're going to have is somebody that needs you to do direct pressure, put on a tourniquet, use combat gauze. So when you do that training or you take your guys out and gals out to train, that better be one of your highest priorities. And physical fitness goes right along with that because if you're out of shape, try dragging somebody that really is unconscious. It's not easy. It's really not easy. Now he can pick me up and throw me right on my shoulder or on his shoulder and go. But if I pick out one of you young ladies in the crowd that I probably weigh at least two times more than you do, what's gonna be your technique? And you can do it, you just need to learn how to do that. So that, that would, I mean, medic to me would be, that'd be the top I'll one. The, the two most important lessons for me and, and important for you guys here is one, the concept of leading from the front. You've all heard that. I shared a little bit of my story with you. You know, I, I'm in nobody's chain of command. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel walking point for an infantry company because somebody had to do it. Somebody had to lead from the front. So when you're a Lieutenant out there in the Army, you're a platoon leader, you can't email in your leadership. You can't phone it in. You gotta be there. You gotta have your troops see you. You gotta be visible. You gotta lead from the front. And, and, and But that doesn't necessarily mean taking point. I'm not the one going through that's the That's exactly right? right. You gotta a, know where you gotta a be. A better term for that is lead from the decisive point because chances are, as the commissioned officer, you're not gonna be walking point. I don't recommend it because you got people who are better at that than you are. And if you're walking point, you have no idea what's going on behind you. So you have to be at the decisive point where you can best command and control. And the other concept is always be ready. We didn't have a single contingency plan that had me in it. And yet there I was out there. So you gotta always be ready no matter what. Your, your unit is on uh, you know, the, the 18th priority. All your guys are out picking up pine cones on post. And next thing you know, you're in it. So always be ready. Can I, one of the things, um, uh, a lesson learned is one, you, you're going to have to accept the fact is if you think that you're the subject matter expert, look, your, your soldiers know that when you, you know, even though you, you, you come from here, you've gone to ranger school, you've gone to your basic course, you know, you're probably still not the expert at the job. They understand that and it's, it's, a, mutual, it's a mutual training experience. However, they, they, they also, uh, by being there, they learn how to trust you. Also too, believe it or not, even if though you don't think it, I never thought I was a subject matter expert for sure. Um, but I understood that, um, you know, that, that feeling where, I mean, I'll be honest with you, fear gripped me so bad I couldn't move at times. And it, you acknowledge it. But then I also realized that there's a lot of people that are seeing me. And, I, you know, if I lose my, you know, if I lose my shit, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad for everybody else. And the most thing I can do is be about as calm as possible 
but be you know scared out of my wits because there needs to be focus and 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 all you you become is a liability to your organization and not an asset and i refuse to be an ass a, a liability at that point as an nco too i'm going to add to both of what you guys said as an nco we're looking at these guys even though i may have more time in the army than he does because i was you know, I come in a little bit earlier, the, the guys, your platoon sergeant or whatever, but I'm looking at these guys. Lava here was credible before Mogadishu. But what do you think that did to his credibility after that fight? It was up here. Same thing with Lieutenant Perino. He went from some lieutenant that I'm like, okay, he seems like a decent enough guy. Now he's a credible combat leader. That's what all you guys are hoping to, you guys and gals are hoping for, right? You want to be credible. But when you get that credibility, it's a whole lot easier to lose it than it is to gain it. And that's one of the things you guys have to constantly fight with when you get put in that leadership position. Because you're, you know, for an NCO, we work our way up to that leadership position. You immediately have it. Establish your credibility, maintain your credibility, and just remember that everybody knows what you're doing. And you can lose that credibility in a heartbeat. These guys are awesome because they've never lost their credibility. You got your main man here. General never lost his credibility. A, a, a combat veteran that is highly, highly respected in Delta. Same thing with Liam. So you got to maintain that level of credibility so that, that you, you have that throughout your whole career. All right, we'll turn it over to the audience for uh, some questions. I'm sure you're, there's plenty of them out there. Can I warm it up? Yeah, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, so I'll warm it up. My question is, uh, one, if they can just talk about, this goes into ethical decision-making. So there's ROE, there's non-combatants, and then there's also the decision to infill Shoe Garden Gordon. And if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, that through the decision-making process. So as our future leaders, you know, which none of those are easy decisions. All right. And and people are faced with them uh, every single day when you're out there in that kind of environment. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off. Um, the ethical decision part, I'll give you an example of that. I, for years I thought I was the senior man at the first crash site, so I was making all the decisions there. Then later I learned that Eric Olson, who went on to be a four-star admiral and uh, commander of SOCOM, was actually there. And I didn't even know it. And, and he said, hey Lee, you were, you were doing a good job, no need for me to step in, but he outranked me at the time. So that's, there's a good leadership nugget in there for you, but one of, one of my decisions I had to make is we got two dead bodies here, and everyone there is committed to getting them out. But what if we're losing people along the way? What if now we got four, six, 12 dead bodies? At what point in time do you say, we're taking too many casualties to justify staying here to get these two dead bodies out, which have, have now, you know, now we've got 10 times that many. At some point in time, we're all gonna die in the name of getting these out. So that, I don't have an answer for that. Thank, thank God I didn't have to make that decision because we weren't taking the casualties. But ask yourself that at some point in time when you got the time to reflect and you can put yourself in that position. What do you do? Our whole culture is leave no man behind. We always take care of our own. But, but does it mean we're gonna sacrifice our entire unit to do so? And that's one of the questions General Garrison had. You know, I've only got a finite number of people left to send out there in the battle to help the guys who are stuck out there. And how many times can I send them out and get them shot up and then limp back and then try to find some other vehicles and 
cobble together someone else and send them out. So those are, those are the kind of ethical questions that I don't have an answer for other than to say that, you know, you've all heard the words duty, honor, country, presumably. That gives you an ethical, a moral foundation. It's a foundation of integrity. And when you're making all your decisions based on that, you can look back and say, okay, I made the wrong decision. But no one can question why you made that decision if it was built on the proper foundation. So I, I, I don't have a, you know, a brilliant analysis of here's the, here's the uh, equation for always making an ethical decision. But I think if you put yourself in those positions and say, what would I do then? then, then you'll, and, and if you have that values-based foundation, then that's going to serve you tremendously the rest of your life, in and out of uniform. With regard to rules of engagement, when you go to Iraq, is there a difference between rules of engagement between Delta Marines and the 82nd? No. But what there is a difference in is how it's articula articulated to your people. If your men and women do not understand the rules of engagement, that's on you. It better be crystal clear what a threat, non-combatant, unknown, whatever you want to call them, they need to understand that before they go out there and, and do what they got to do. And that being said, when you're on the battlefield, you see what's happening. When you're not on the battlefield, don't second guess your friends. There's a lot of things that happen on the battlefield. Some people call it the fog of war. I hate when people say that because, yeah, it's not the fog of war. It's you're doing what you perceived to be right at that moment in time. If you're doing what's wrong, then you're, you're wrong. And you can't hide that because everybody there is going to know that that was absolutely wrong. But uh, rules of engagement, you, every one of you, have got to understand that. But more importantly, all of your people have to understand what their rules engage of engagement are. Does that answer that? Thanks. Got a question? And we can go a little long if we got this. Uh, he's got one here. Yeah. All right, well, while he's bringing the mic on, on the ROE part, the same mortar round that killed Matt Ryerson wounded Gary Harrell, who was the squadron commander. So I got put in command in, in Gary's absence. And uh, Kyle and the guys brought up to me and said, hey, our rules of engagement suck. It's like two paragraphs of this, that, and the other thing. And I said, your rules of engagement are, if you determine a threat, you eliminate that threat. Because I could trust these guys, their level of training, their intelligence, their target discrimination, that we didn't have to have several paragraphs or pages of detailed ROE. It's if there's a threat, you eliminate it. And, and that was never an issue for me. Yeah, if you're coming up with rules of engagement to cover your ass, I don't want to work for you. I don't even want to be near you on the battlefield. I want to be on the battlefield with a dude that's going to give me rules of engagement that allow me to do my job, eliminate that threat, and continue with the mission. But you better make darn sure you identify the correct threat. Yeah, roger that. Yeah. Gentlemen, uh, Cadet Nick Zalduendo, uh, Company Delta One. Uh, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, then Sergeant Struker, now Chaplain Struker, uh, has a speech about uh, the battle at Mogadishu really shaped his faith. Um, and as Sergeant Major Lamb briefly touched on, I was wondering if any of y'all had similar experiences in your faith from either this battle or any other experience in the Army. You know, my, my first time out when, when I told you we went out in the unarmored Humvees and got shut up and came back, I was standing in the back of a pickup configured Humvee with my RTO right next to me. 
and uh, suddenly we saw thousands of green tracers and they were all converging on my chest. And you know, that's every fifth round. So I never figured out why I didn't spring several leaks, but today I know because I was supposed to go and answer his prayer. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> you didn't look quite like the guy I was looking for. <laughs> Uh, any port in a storm. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm a Christian, so I, I have my faith, and I've always prayed before every jump and done things like that. So I've always asked for protection. But in that moment, I asked for something else, you know, which was just I wanted to not be a coward. I wanted to do what I needed to do. So there's nothing wrong with having faith. So, I mean, and I'm... I, Maybe that's not the politically correct thing to say, but I'm happy to stand up and say I'm a Christian and believe in God. And I've done a lot of praying because I've been in a lot of places where it was dangerous. So, yeah, for me, that's part of that foundation I talked about earlier. And it's a belief that it, you know, if it's your time, it's your time. Um, but you just understand that you know you still have a mission, and it, that you know the best you can pray is that you know you represent yourself and your faith well. Right. It's a steady day, so we've probably got time for one or two more questions. And I know you guys probably won't have them, and then all of a sudden we'll end it, and there'll be 20 of you down here to talk to them. <laughs> so no one's, got on, the, no one's got the mental courage to ask a, a question. Really, for Larry, for Larry here, for Larry here um, we, we have our foundational military competencies, um, shoot, move, communicate, treat, and lead. They're all our combat lifesavers, at least coming out of here now as they grow up. And uh, we, we packed that on a, on, a, uh, on a foundation of fitness. And you, you were in this battle 40 months after graduation. And you and I have served many a times. I know you're a great trainer, as um, uh, Kyle said. You're very, very credible in our force. What's your advice to the cadets that are here about how they should, should invest their time versus spend or waste their time as a cadet um, going into the future. Right. Um, well, it's kind of weird. My, my experience, and I have been really lucky. Um, I consider myself very lucky with the, with the folks that I surrounded myself by um, and associated myself with. I always looked at my time here, and, and I enjoyed my time <laughs> as a cadet. And, and even though General Gillen keeps saying that, you know, I got to see him. And it's the first time I voluntarily got to go into the Commandant's office <laughs> was today. Uh, I, I actually never was, but I always looked at it, you know, never forget why you're here at this institution. It's a means to an end, and what's, what's the end? Um, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's great that I have a Bachelor of Science from the United States Military Academy in Computer Science. But uh, it was pretty much obsolete about five minutes after I walked across the stage because I, you know, as an infantry officer, I mean, hell, email was like a new thing back when we, we, you know, we were just talking about that. They that thought an abacus was a computer then. You know, it, it was funny. Uh, you know, actually, I, I'll take this for him. I thought my computer monitor was a real good place to hang all my sticky notes so I could see them all at one spot. Um, so... Uh, I always looked at this, this was a means to an end, and my, my mission was, you know, my desire was to be um, as a leader in the United States Army, um, truly, and, you know, I, um, and, and that's what my focus was, you know, and, and 
never forget why you're here. And, and, it, and it's great to be from here, and it's great to say I've got my graduation, but you understand what, what is, and it was just kind of like, I really wanted to do that. You know, I didn't want a degree from Westmont. I wanted to be a commissioned officer in the United States Army and lead soldiers. So I think that's probably it, and you'll probably get swamped by people that didn't have questions when we're done here. So if you could, again, thank my panel for uh, taking their time to come today. Thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter slash X, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.